Welcome again, especially if you're new here. Um, we are starting a new series of uh, sermons today, so it's really a good time to be here for the first time. Um, this new series is called Out of Socket, and the reason we call the series Out of Socket is because I think we all share something in common, regardless of religious orientation or anything uh, having to do with your faith. I think we all share this deep-seated feeling of, uh, most of the time, just something not being quite right. And I think it's, uh, it's natural for us, we think it's natural to feel that way whenever, whenever life's a struggle, whenever things aren't going our way, or whenever we're young and we just don't have a lot, you know, and we think one day when this, this, and this happens, then things will feel right. Um, but what's really a shock to the system is when you get to that point in your life when everything's supposed to be good and you still feel the same sense of uh, uh, being disconnected or something's just off. So um, what does that mean when circumstances are really good? When you have the career you want, you graduated from the school you wanted, um, you know, you got a great spouse, you got great kids, or your life's just good, as good as you ever thought it would be. And you still have that feeling that something in the world is not the way it should be, and people aren't the way they should be, and you're not the way you should be. What does that word should mean, and why does it haunt us? And, um, you know, I know there are people here that aren't Christians, and I'm glad that you're here if you're not a Christian, um, if you're an agnostic or atheist or uh, just you're non-religious. Um, not to put any pressure on you or anything, but you're kind of our target audience, and so I, <laughs> I'm glad you're here, first of all, and I also hope you get something out of this experience. But, um, but I, I think if you're a Christian, you probably understand that by, in the Christian worldview, the way we make sense of that disconnected, restless feeling is uh, by talking about sin and the fall as illustrated in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and the apple and the fruit and all that, that forbidden fruit, you know. And when sin entered into the human story is when we started having that restless feeling that something's missing, that something's not right, something's broken. And no amount of good circumstances can take away that feeling that something's broken or missing or not right. And so sin is the answer to that equation if you're a Christian um, and... Uh, in, in the Christian worldview, God's response to that problem is more important than the problem itself. God's response to the problem of sin isn't to um, pile on. So God sees your flaws, your brokenness, uh, your bad decisions, your worst moments, and instead of piling on and saying, I'm disgusted with you, you're not the person you should be, get away from me, you know, instead of a condemnation to hell, the Christian worldview would suggest that this God, the one true God, actually proposes a promise. Not a condemnation to hell, but a promise to heal. And the Word of God, the Bible for Christians, is, uh, is full of the promises that God makes to his people. And so the question we're really asking with this series out of socket for the next seven weeks is what are the promises God makes to us? What has God promised you? And why in the world should you believe the promises of God are true? And uh, for those of you that are just dyed-in-the-wool Christians and every letter of the Bible is true for you and you never struggle with doubts, you're going to be really bored for the next 30 minutes probably. But for the rest of you who really struggle with doubts and questions and some darkness and stuff, like maybe I'll speak something that uh, resonates with you. Um, because I, I think the question on what basis, on what grounds should we believe the promises of God as given to us in the Bible is a pressing one for a lot of us, all right? So that's part of what we're doing with this series. Another thing we're doing with this series for the next seven weeks is we're studying the life and times of a man named Jacob from the Old Testament book of Genesis. 
And so this is kind of a survey course of the life of Jacob in uh, the middle of Genesis. And most people have a very vague knowledge, if any at all, of Jacob. Even Christians don't really know much about Jacob, and he's in our book. And yet we should, because he plays a key role in the story God wants to tell in the Bible. So uh, you know probably bits and pieces of Jacob. Maybe you know that he's the father of Joseph. Uh, he gave Joseph the amazing Technicolor dream coat. How many of you knew that? Truly, honestly. All right, about it. Really? About a twelfth of the room knew that, so uh, we got some work to do. All right, so uh, Jacob, Jacob, father of Joseph, Jacob, brother of Esau. He cheated his twin brother Esau out of the birthright. Maybe you knew that part. Maybe you know uh, the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel of God and how God dislocated his hip, uh, pulled his hip out of socket, left him with a, with a limp. Um, maybe you've heard that story. Or the story of Jacob's ladder and the dream that he had. Maybe you've heard the story of the time Jacob fell so hard for a girl fell so hard for a girl that he agreed to, to work for her father for seven years in exchange for her hand in marriage. And he didn't get her hand in marriage up front. He got it at the end of the seven years. And at the end of the seven years, finally it was time for him to get married, but something happened. I don't know what. Maybe he had too much to drink on his wedding night, but he woke up the next morning and the father of the girl had pulled the old switcheroo on him. And he woke up next to the girl's ugly older sister and he married her instead. And then he loved the first girl so much that he, worked and he agreed to work another seven years to be able to marry her too. There's all kinds of stories we have vague familiarity with with Jacob. We probably should, if we're serious about at least exploring the promises of God in Scripture, we should probably understand the life of Jacob a little better. For example, most of you probably didn't know this, that the most famous story Jesus tells, the story of the prodigal son, uh, is actually a dramatic story retelling. It's Jesus' retelling of the life of Jacob. And so we're going to learn a little bit more about that through this series as the series unfolds and develops. It's very important that we understand who Jacob was and what, what, he, what he did with his life. Before we get into the weeds with Jacob, I think it would really help as we set the table for this series by talking more about his grandfather um, before we get to, to Jacob. We'll talk about his grandfather, Abraham. So Jacob's dad was Isaac, and Isaac's dad was Abraham. And um, the, the most important promises of God in the Old Testament are given to Abraham toward the beginning of the book of Genesis. And they're the promises on which the whole rest of the Bible uh, is based. And so it's kind of important that we understand uh, who Abraham was and the promises God makes to him. Now, uh, I guess if you're uh, agnostic about Scripture and you just think the Bible is another holy book written by men with uh, religious agendas, maybe, uh, maybe you're going to be skeptical about Abraham too. Because why, in 2018, enlightened America, should anyone in their right mind care at all about some herdsman named Abraham who may or may not have even existed Historically speaking, 3,000 years ago, this is how the mind of a, of a skeptic works. I know this because I was in there, in that place for a long time. Like, if you're, if you're skeptical about Scripture, you're probably going to lump Abraham into other kinds of mythologies that you've learned about from ancient Assyria or from ancient Greece. And who knows if this guy really existed, um, but there was just a mythology built around his name. Maybe it was just a, a kind of a folklore kind of a thing. So uh, skeptics or agnostics will, will chalk Abraham up to the stuff of fable. So what's reality? Um, 
I'm gonna do a little sidebar because I think it's important. It was interesting to me to research this. Like, what evidence is there outside the Bible that the story of Abraham is historically true? First of all, that he even really existed, right? So the first question to answer there, if you're really skeptical, is whether or not there are any sources outside the Bible that refer to the existence of Abraham. Otherwise, it's just circular logic. The Bible says Abraham's there, and we believe Abraham's there because the Bible says it's just, it. It kind of folds in on itself. So what other sources refer to this man, Abraham? There are surprisingly many. In fact, the earliest references to the man who influenced so many in that region of Canaan at that time weren't in the Bible record. They predate when the Bible was written, we think. The earliest references to Abraham, uh, actually the earliest one, was an Egyptian uh, war inscription. It was after a a battle in a town called Negev that uh, the Egyptian armies um, inscribed kind of a taunt, uh, making fun of Abraham and the people of Abraham, like, uh, dear Abraham and dudes, we got you, or whatever the the 10th century BC equivalent to that uh, would have been. They name him, they refer to him by name. And it's clear. And that it's just one of many. Any honest historian is, uh, is going to say that it's exceedingly likely that an influential man named Abraham rose from the ranks of nomadic tribesmen and, uh, and changed the world in the Canaanite region around the 1200s BC. All right? So that's interesting. And then it just gets more compelling from there. I mean, just look at the legacy of Abraham. And it's hard to imagine that a mythological person who didn't really exist in history could have uh, such a legacy like Abraham has. Imagine that today, just imagine this, 4.1 billion people belong to an Abrahamic faith. 4.1 billion, almost 60% of the world's population belong to a faith tradition that bears the name of this supposedly mythological nomadic tribesman who was deeply flawed and had no qualities of heroism, you know, he was just a guy who trusted God. Like, it seems unlikely that uh, 4.1 billion people would adhere to such a a mythological, non-historical idea. But all that to say, if you're a Christian, none of that really matters. Because if you're a Christian, you've pretty much made your mind up about Jesus. And to be a Christian actually means to believe the promises of God. That's what, that's all it means. It doesn't mean to go to church or to be a Methodist or whatever. It doesn't matter, like, uh, you know, your past or your, how you spend your time or money. Like, to actually be a Christian all comes down to whether you believe the promises of God. And if you believe the promise of God, you believe in Jesus and his words and that they're historically true and accurate, trustworthy. And Jesus spoke at length about Abraham. The most, uh, I think, interesting reference of Jesus to Abraham is in John chapter 8, when the Pharisees are bragging about being the true sons of Abraham, and they're like, we're the true sons, the true heirs of Abraham. And Jesus was like, really? Because I was just hanging out with him in heaven right before I came down here. He like gave me a high five on the way out the door. And like he said, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced when my time came to come to earth. And then Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, which was a very mysterious way of saying that Jesus knew he was God and not just a teacher along the lines of, or a prophet along the lines of Abraham. 
And so Jesus himself referred many times to Abraham. If you're a Christian, that's enough for you. The other stuff is interesting, but it doesn't really matter as much. Nevertheless, however you come at this, there is very little debate about whether or not Abraham actually existed and whether or not the world actually changed forever through this, this nobody, this tribesman. So if we can assume that he existed and that his historical existence is real 13th century or 12th century BC, I guess 13th century BC, um, nomadic tribesmen, then what would that life have looked like? I think this is important for the guys in the room. Guys, we're visual creatures. We like to envision things and how they might have happened. And I don't think art does Abraham justice because in most classic art of Abraham, he is depicted as anything from a poor old white man to a rich old white man. Like those are the choices um, with the occasional rich old Asian man thrown in just for good measure, but mostly it's just an old white man. And you have to really ask yourself, is this the kind of person historically that you would imagine uh, a 13th century BC nomadic uh, uh, Canaanite region tribesman to have looked like? Probably not. So what did he look like? I remember uh, when I went to the Holy Land, I uh, was touring around. We were, we were traversing through some uh, wilderness territory. The wilderness in the Holy Land is just the desert, like the valleys. And uh, it's all just brown and hot and dusty. And, and we were going through some of the hottest and dustiest parts of the Holy Land. And, and I spotted in the distance a couple of tents that were set up across the way. And, and I asked the tour guide um, what was going on there. You know, I, I wasn't familiar with, uh, a, you know, a nomadic. I didn't think people were nomads anymore. And he was... He's handed me his binoculars and he said, take a closer look. And I could spot like 20 to 25 men, women, and children who were just doing life around those tents. And uh, they had animals and the kids were playing games and the adults were just kind of hanging out. And he said, those are the Bedouin people. And the Bedouin people are doing life today the way that they've done it for thousands of years, all the way back to the time of Abraham. And so if you want to imagine the kind of world or culture that God entered into when he gave Abraham these promises we're going to read about, um, this is it. This dry, dusty, nomadic, unsettled existence or subsistence in most cases. That's who Abraham was, um, most likely, uh, in the 13th century B.C. All right. So uh, I want to read a couple of passages from the Bible. The first one is uh, from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. If you have a Bible, I uh, invite you to get it out. Um, you are in the minority, however, at the Story of Houston, if you brought your Bible to church. If you're looking for a uh, New Year's resolution, it's just the sixth day of the year. There's still time to make a new resolution. Resolve to bring your Bible to church with you. You will make my day. You'll make my year. So please just uh, think about that. It's, I know it sounds like a token, like a meaningless token, but there's power in it because it will familiarize you more with your own Bible and it will make it more likely that you will pick it up during the week. First of all, because you'll know where it is. <laughs> so anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a physical Bible, uh, Bible app will work as well. Nobody will judge you for uh, bringing out your, your phone and, and reading along. Um, for today, if you don't have either, it's going to be in your study guides that you have or uh, on the screen. Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to Abram, just, y'all probably know this, but Abram, Abraham, same guy. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham in chapter 17. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country from your people, from your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you 
and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old. All right. So uh, these are the initial promises of God to Abraham. Okay. Uh, what specifically does God promise Abraham? I think there's a few things uh, that I, I, these are broad strokes, but I summed it up this way. This is the what of God's promise. God promised him uh, property. In other words, land, uh, which was equal to prosperity back in those days. God promised Abram uh, progeny, children, descendants. God promised Abraham protection. While God's will is being fulfilled through him, God's going to protect him from every enemy. And then based on that, based on the what of God's promises, uh, Abram went. No questions asked, really. He just left. And this isn't like leaving River Oaks to go to the heights. This is like the wilderness, the cold, dusty, just, uh, just defenseless wilderness. And so uh, th there he was. He was out on his own. He left his father's household and to go out without any details, right? And it's not until later that God kind of fills in the picture a little bit. So Abram trusts God, begins to walk with God. And then later, three chapters later, after some time passes in Genesis 15, God kind of clears up the picture a little bit because you'll see here in the subtext, it's clear. Abram's got some doubts. Abraham's got some questions, some fears, even as you'll see. Genesis 15 verses one through six. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. So he was afraid because he's telling him not to be. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord credited, credited that's hard to say, it to Abraham as righteousness. All right. So here, uh, God fills in the gaps. But listen, this was what really blew my mind this week. I hope it does yours. If it doesn't, this sermon's going to be really awful for you. But um, God gave Abraham the details after, quite a long time after, three chapters after, God gave him the big picture. And so God gave Abram the, uh, the what of his promises. He said, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to protect you if you trust me. And then Abraham trusted him. And then after trusting God for a while, God begins to fill in the gaps of the story because Abraham was having some trouble figuring out how he was going to fulfill these promises given that Abram and his, his wife, Sarah, were without children. Okay, okay, I believe you, I trust you, I'm walking with you, but wait a minute, how is this going to happen? But first came the what? And without believing the what, Abraham might have never even heard the how. It's, it seems like God wants to wait to see what we'll do with the what. To see if we're truly trusting of him. If we believe in his promises. And then once we believe in his promises and we begin to walk in them, 
then he reveals the how. And it occurred to me how stubborn I've been throughout my life with God, standing at the crossroads, looking at his promises, and seeing the what very clearly. I see the what. I know what God has promised me, but I want the how now before I walk with the what. I want the how. And I want the who and the where and the when and the why too. I want all of it before I will act on the what, before I walk in faith in that direction. That's not how our God works. God seems to give us the what, and then he waits. Why? I don't know. Maybe he wants to know that we're faithful. Maybe all of it at once would be too much for us to believe. Or maybe if he gave us all of it at once and told us the what, along with all the glorious how and why and when and where and who, maybe we would get entitled and think that it's deserved. It's because we're good or something. I don't, I don't know. Whatever the case, God gave Abram the what, Abraham walked in the what, and the how was revealed. Not only that, but as he reveals the how, he seals the promise with a symbol. God does. And I love this about God. Every time God uh, promises something in the Bible, he seals it with a symbol. God loves symbols. And we do too. We're made in his image. We love symbols. We have symbols for everything. And God gave symbols to people every time he made a promise to, to seal the deal as a pact, right? And so he gave Noah the what? The rainbow, good. He gave, he gave uh, Moses the cloud of, and the fire, the pillar. And he gave, he gave uh, you know, here, Abraham, he gave the stars in the sky. We love symbols. We respond to symbols, right? So uh, I was thinking this week about some of the symbols, like uh, the American flag. That's a symbol that stands for something, right? Or uh, the Texas flag stands for something. Or like, check, uh, check this out. What's that stand for? Symbols, right? Uh, maybe we don't want to talk about this one right now, right? So maybe it's... Uh, I'm going to turn it around this way. All right, so... Or what about this? Can you see it? What does that stand for? What do you say? It's the fruit, right? It's apple. It's Macintosh. But y'all know that this symbol actually comes from Genesis 3, from the illustration of the fall, right? Like that was the impetus of this symbol. I'm, tr I'm, I'm serious. The bite out of the apple, uh, it was uh, symbolic of, you know, human liberty, human freedom. Like that's where this came from. So you might, you might go so far as to say apple is the company of the devil. I don't know. <laughs> PC guys have been trying to tell us this forever, <laughs> but nobody listens to PC guys because they're PC guys. You know, anyway, sorry, PC guys. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we, we are big on, uh, on symbols uh, today, and, and uh, I think that's because we're made in the image of God who loves powerful symbolism. And so I have two questions as we wrap up today. Um, what are the promises God has made to you and what symbols does he offer as a seal? So when I listen to Christians talk in many public spheres, or I listen to sermons online or on TV, I often get the impression that we believe that God has made us the same promises that he made to Abraham. And that if we're faithful Christians, God will give us land or prosperity. He'll give us a great family. 
and he'll protect us. That is not the promise God made you. That's not the promise God made us today. Uh, you can just ask the first Christians about that. <laughs> the first Christians who died in Colosseums in the mouths of hungry lions or on crosses or burning at the stake about the promises of God being protection in this life or wealth and comfort or even family for that matter in a nuclear family sense like you meet a girl and you get married and all this white picket fence stuff that's not what God has promised you what God has promised you is far better than what he promised Abraham you are not a recipient of the promises God made to Abraham. You are a beneficiary of the fulfillment of those promises. We stand in the grace, in the aftermath of the fulfillment of the promises God made to Abraham because Abraham walked by faith. Jesus came to restore. And we stand in the promises of God in Christ. And every promise God has made to you, all the what and the how and the when and the why and the where and the who, all of it can be summed up in the one word, the one man, Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that every promise God has ever made to you, to you and to me and to human beings, every promise finds its yes in Jesus. Every one. Jesus is the big what of God's promise to you. Jesus stands as the promise before you, the what, the assurance. And if you walk towards him, if you take that on faith, even though you have doubts, even though you're afraid, if you walk toward him along that path, God then reveals to you the how and the why and the when and the where and the who. And it is glorious, more glorious than you can imagine. He reveals to you the true meaning of all the words Jesus ever said. For God so loved the world. He came not so the world would be condemned, but so the world could be saved. You begin to understand what it means to be forgiven and set free free. Over time, you begin to understand it's revealed to you all the promises in their fullness of God. But it starts very simply with this man, Jesus. And your decision isn't about all of it at once. But it's just about him. And some people here today have been disappointed at best by men or women bearing his name or by a religion built as a copy of his gospel. You've been let down, disappointed, shut out, hurt, and you have uh, applied that disappointment to him. Right now I pray for the wisdom for you, for you to have the wisdom to distinguish between the men who follow Jesus and Jesus himself the gospel he brings, and the religion that came after. Because Jesus is true. His promises are true and everlasting. His gospel will not let you down, even though men and women, religion will. So it's easy to forget because life happens and you do get disappointed, you do get discouraged, Life happens, doubts creep back in, and you begin to wonder again whether or not it's going to happen for you, this promise of God. So when that happens, what symbol or seal can you look to? 
Christians will knee-jerk reaction, the cross, right? So the cross is our symbol, and the cross is a powerful symbol. I don't think, though, that, uh, that anyone who was around in New Testament times actually thought the cross would be the enduring symbol. For them, the cross was a horrific thing, the most horrific thing you could imagine. In fact, I heard this week that the cross never became a symbol uh, of the church until everyone who had ever seen a man die on a cross was dead and gone, because it was unimaginable that something so horrible would become the symbol or the reminder. It can be a reminder, but it's not the one Jesus left for us as a seal of the promise. Jesus was very intentional about leaving us as a seal of his promise. This bread and this cup. Jesus himself and no man of the cloth instituted this bread and this cup as the reminder for you. And that's why we do it every Sunday. Because we know life happens. We know you feel lost some days wondering if any of it is true, if any of it will ever come to pass for you, if any of God's promises will hold. And so Jesus says, come. And then he said, every time you break this bread, which is his body, which is a reminder of God, not standing at a distance, but coming near in the flesh, he said, eat it and remember me. And then he said, take the cup. And every time you remember this cup, you remember what the contents of this cup represent, that God doesn't just come near to us, but that he poured his blood out for us. The very blood of God, the most sacred substance possible, poured out as a reminder of his love that covers every sin of every person ever committed. Because his love is so rich. These are the things you start to understand after you take those first steps toward Jesus. And then every time you come as a reminder to take the bread and the cup, you remember the faithfulness of God. Uh, the very first Christians uh, also had their seasons of doubt, and you're not the first if you struggle with this kind of discouragement uh, or if you're in that kind of a funk. Uh, in Galatians 3, Paul writes uh, to Christians who are struggling with the very thing. Uh, he, this is what he said. It's on the screen. He says, you foolish Galatians. Paul is a little, <laughs> a little honest sometimes. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it was really in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or religion, is what he's saying, or by your believing what you heard, just believing the promise of God? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And now listen to this, uh, verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who believe. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's us. Blessed through Abraham. Grafted into this family tree of God. And so what that means, the reason it's so much better than the promises God gave to Abraham is that Abraham carried those promises around like a burden. 
He had to come through on his end of the deal. We are just recipients of grace. And so it doesn't matter what your family status is, if you're single or married or divorced or anywhere in between. It doesn't matter how your career's going, how successful you are, how much land you have or property or prosperity. None of that matters. The promises of God remain true for you. For you. And this is where I'm going to end, I promise. If you're hot, believe me, I'm hotter. Uh, <laughs> this is it. All right, so I'm about done. Literally, just about done. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I shared a very vulnerable moment, and I wish I hadn't because now everybody just looks at me like a wounded puppy. Uh, I shared about how I cried in the car that one time. Uh, it's the only time in my life I've ever cried. And so it's, uh, I'm just kidding. I do it a lot. Um, I did a lot of uh, thinking over the holiday. And I realized that I fall prey to religion in a unique way because uh, as a pastor, I get into the habit of telling everybody that the gospel is for them. And the promise is for them. And God's love is for them. God's forgiveness is for them. And then it occurred to me, as I talked to some trusted friends about this, it's not just pastors. A lot of us who come to church a lot get into the same habit. We tell everybody else that God loves them. We try to remind everybody that God's love is great and his forgiveness looks past every sin. And, 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 and church is for them. And the gospel is for them. And that's true. But when that's true at the expense of internalizing it for yourself, and receiving the gift and understanding that it's not everybody else's name and face and heart and soul that was on Jesus' mind when he died on the cross, but it was yours. You and me. And not some polished future version that has it all together. This broke down, messed up version that sits here today or that stands up here today is the one Jesus loved so much that he came and died for us. And it occurred to me that last year I probably served communion 300 times, but I only received it maybe a dozen because I was so busy making sure everybody else understood it. It's not just me, I think it's a lot of us who need to be reminded once again the promises of God are true for you. If you stand at a crossroads with Jesus as the promise of God on the one hand and this agnostic, drifting, coasting through life on the other, and maybe you're going to tell me, but I do trust Jesus. Look, I'm here at church. Okay. It's not quite it. <laughs> Because there's no halfway with trusting Jesus as the promise of God. If he's the promise of God, he's God in the flesh. If he's God in the flesh, he's your God. If he's your God, you chase him before all things. You trust him above all things. You love him more than all things. And so I would just ask you at the start of this new year, are you on the fence still? Is Jesus your buddy or is he your God? 
Is he your everything? Is he your all? When your friends and family look at you, do they see him and his glory and goodness? Do they experience his forgiveness and mercy through you? They can. They can, I promise. If you trust the what of God's promise enough to walk in that direction. And over time, he reveals to you all the glorious details of his plan and purpose for your life. All I ask today is you would challenge yourself and be honest and that you would maybe even consider putting your name on one of those lists outside to join in a group and just, hey, study the word for yourself. This season, stop listening to what guys like me tell you to think about it and go study it for yourself. You've got a mind, you can do it. We've got tons of groups to study the word. Dig in, dive in. Pretend like Jesus is your God, even if he's not yet. Give it a shot, see what happens. I promise, I promise you. Everything can change. And the things that don't seem quite right begin to come into focus as you begin to trust God more and more. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for courage and wisdom for those of us on the fence or standing at that crossroads and unsure our next steps. God, help us to know that um, there really is no casual way of going about this. Um, as uncomfortable as it seems, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an all-or-nothing situation because uh, you're too high and holy to just be in our back pockets as our go-to friend in a time of need. You are God or you're not. I pray that each person here would have the courage right now and the clarity of thought to consider putting you where you belong, on the throne, at the center and to building their life this year around you and your word. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.